there's not a single place of work that hasn't been affected by the coronavirus. With plenty of organisations making the swift shift to work from home, reconfiguring the type of work they deliver and redefining their strategic plans, it can have you wondering where does workplace culture fit into all of this? If people or culture aren't a part of the picture, the result is disengaged employees and disappointed customers. It doesn't have to be this way, even amongst a global pandemic. Today's guest, Michael Henderson, has worked with hundreds of organisations as a corporate anthropologist, exploring the cultures of workplaces. He has seen time and time again that with the right approach to culture and with a passionate and capable leadership team, organisations' cultures can be ignited to deliver outrageous levels of performance and deep and meaningful levels of fulfilment. In this conversation, Michael shares why diving into our greatest fears will be the thing that liberates organisations. He also shares strategies for leading cultures when you have people working from home, which is very relevant for this time. Michael is one of those extraordinary people who I am honoured to call a friend that will have you thinking deeper and will leave you wanting for things to be better simply by being who he is. Please soak up the wisdom that drips from Michael Henderson. Michael, welcome. It's such a delight to be hanging out with you. Thank you. Likewise. We, um, we are appropriately social distancing as you are sitting in Auckland and uh, I'm here on the Gold Coast. Um, and this is a conversation I was just saying to you a moment ago, a conversation I've wanted to have with you for a while. And um, my preference is usually to sit in a studio to be able to have those face-to-face conversations. But this is the second best thing to be able to sit down uh, via Zoom and, and connect with you. But it's also, uh, I was conscious of the timing to be able to connect with you, your experience of workplaces, uh, of cultures, and to have that conversation whilst we're in the midst of um, COVID-19, which is yeah. the unusual time across, across the globe. Um, as you're sitting in Auckland, how, how is it impacting on, on you and your experience? Um, it's probably almost potentially sounds inappropriate in some respects. I'm actually uh, really enjoying the experience. Um, and that's a personal at a personal level, which we maybe get back to later. But just um, just watching how society and uh, people in my local community are responding to this, um, I'm finding absolutely fascinating. Um, and with any major shift in context, human beings um, usually find that it brings out both the best and the worst in us. And um, I've certainly found that to be the case, even. Um, at a national level that we're seeing in the news in New Zealand, um, but then uh, also just in a local community, we sort of my wife and I are taking our dogs out for three walks every day, and uh, you can see people kind of abiding by um, the appropriate guidelines that we've all been given, and some sort of flaunting those. Um, some people are deliberately kind of being more interactive, so waving or saying hello across the roadway. Um, whereas others uh, are, are almost walking past you with their head down, eyes averted. Um, so it's just kind of fascinating watching how 
yeah, different human beings are making the choices to get through this or or respond to it. Yeah, I almost feel like um, there's there's part of us collectively not really sure what we should be doing, what the guidelines are, what the what's okay, what's not okay, and I think we're figuring all that out along the way. Part of your title uh, is as a corporate anthropologist. Can you describe what that is, what a corporate anthropologist is? Yeah, gladly. Thank you. Um, let, let's start with the anthropology bit because it, the, the corporate bit is really just the setting in which case the in which the anthropology takes place. And if you ask any anthropologist, they'll probably give you a slightly different way of interpreting what the study is about or what the practice is about or what the profession is about. But the way I describe anthropology is it's the study of human beings as creators of culture. So what that basically means is studying how human beings choose to and form a culture. And that can be at a family level. Um, so um, how those individuals come together and start to create rituals or symbols or celebrations or ceremonies um, to determine the meaning and their connection with each other. Um, or it could be organizations or it could be religions or it could be, as we were just talking about before, society. So it's very much just the study of human beings uh, through the lens, if you like, of the word culture. And then the corporate bit is really just uh, taking anthropology. Anthropology is such a wide field that you can apply it into a whole bunch of different settings. So you can apply it into uh, technology, medicine, music, linguistics, physiology. And I just had a accidental kind of interest in organizational culture and how human beings kind of operate in that environment. So I uh, took the skills and the, the qualifications I have in, in, in anthropology and started to apply it into kind of organisational and business world. Fascinating um, combination. I love that. I'm almost smiling at this accidental interest in it. <laughs> Amazing how accidents lead us into certain areas. Why, why the interest in anthropology? Like I, I definitely see you as someone who's fascinated by human behaviour. Was there ever a consideration for a for study in something else in another field or was it always? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, again, it was, although it's one of those situations when you look back and join the dots, it was always there. I just hadn't been aware of it. Um, so I had no intention of becoming an anthropologist, even, even to be honest, uh, having studied anthropology at university and got a degree in it, I still wasn't convinced that I was going to then become an anthropologist. I had designs on um, <laughs> Uh, professional soccer, which was never going to happen given my skill level. I uh, had designs on being a uh, singer-songwriter, which again, I, I can't sing for my life and have no kind of creative uh, talent in music writing. So there was a whole bunch of other things that I actually had my heart set on and, and anthropology wasn't one of them. The whole thing kind of got started, I think, um, when I was a young tot, it must have been three or four. Um, my hometown is a town called Shrewsbury in England, which is on the uh, edge of a river called the River Severn. And across the river is Wales, the, the nation. And I adored my grandfather who used to walk from our house to the village market every Saturday morning to go and get produce to bring back for the family. 
and uh, I always wanted to walk with him but my mother said look it's too far and you're too young and she said you know once, once you're tall enough and strong enough then you can go with granddad and eventually the day came and I was so excited and we walked and it was quite a hike so I think it was about six or seven miles both directions um, but got to the market and um, was absolutely staggered almost instantly I thought something had gone wrong with my hearing and my grandfather must have seen me sort of rubbing my ears or shaking my head or something, sort of bent down and said, are you okay? I said, no, there's something, something's wrong with my ears, granddad. He said, well, what, what's happening? Are you, are you in pain? I said, no, but I can't hear what those people are saying. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I pointed at them and there was uh, people standing nearby that were speaking in Gaelic or Welsh. And I'd never heard the language. I'd only ever heard and been exposed to English, which is often the case isn't it? when we're in our little kind of bubble communities and our little culture, we only think that's the only language spoken or that's the only culture there is. So um, my grandfather did a rather wonderful thing. He said, oh, um, it's okay. Your ears are fine. Um, that's Welsh. And I, I didn't understand what that was. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they're, they're Welsh people. And I didn't know that that meant they were from another place. So it's like, to my little, whatever it was, four or five-year-old mind, Welsh could have meant stupid or, or ignorant or they're the silly ones. So I hadn't placed it as a kind of a cultural context. It was like, they're the silly people, they're the people that don't speak properly or whatever it happens to be. And you could see I was a bit confused. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, across the river, there's another land called Wales. And he says, it's a wonderful place. And he says, and in that place, uh, grown-ups believe in dragons. And if you've ever seen the Welsh flag, they have a dragon on it. So he knew I'd seen the flag and then sort of joined the dots. So that was the moment where suddenly something about that lit a fascination in me that uh, there's other people out there that live more interesting lives and have better stories and uh, more imagination and creativity than we do, whoever we happen to be. So I think from that very, very early age, I've kind of always been intrigued in those other people and how they are being human over there. And without realising it, that kind of, and I won't bore you with the rest of the stories, but it just led to a long series of investigating, travelling, studying um, yeah, other people and, and other ways of being human on the planet. I think it's um, it's fascinating. I love that story. That uh, I think most people can probably relate to a moment in their their own childhood of realizing that there is more beyond right their own little bubble, right? Uh, and yeah. another way, another way of seeing the world. Um, and I imagine that for you has led down some really really interesting paths in terms of connecting with uh, a variety of of cultures. In terms of the work that you do, as you say, sort of placing that uh, interest in, in people and how they express what we term culture in a corporate setting, um, workplace culture is one of those kind of myths. I think a lot of leaders and senior leaders kind of go, apparently we need one, but I don't know where to get one, <laughs> how much yeah. do they cost? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm interested in in when you look at kind of workplace culture, and this might be one of those kind of big, um, you know, how long have we got kind of questions, but 
in that work, where do you see, um, what are some of the biggest myths or about workplace culture that you've heard from leaders? And it might be things like, uh, it's easy to get, how do I get a good one? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, how will we know when we've got there? Are there kind of false beliefs that, that we hold about what a workplace culture is? Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a really good question because I think even calling them myths is a, almost an appropriate use of the word because um, if you think even about what we just sort of said, you know, grown-ups that believe in dragons in Wales, that's uh, mythology. But uh, in Wales, that mythology is taken almost deadly seriously. And so you can go into a workplace environment and find the same thing. So you can find in organisations they believe in um, uh, concepts like value or price and um, value in particular if you go and kind of unpack that a little bit it, it's a bit of a myth in itself right so they're going we've set the value of our product or our uh, service at this much but of course value is determined by the perceived benefit or experience that the purchaser has it's it's different from price so I think, yeah, what, you, what you're tapping into there is kind of speaking to the very heart of what we're actually talking about here is that uh, each culture, organizational culture included, have a whole bunch of myths and belief systems that they buy into that aren't necessarily true at all, but they make the world feel meaningful and they can make the world feel motivating for us and they can give us a sense of belonging with a like-minded group of people who believe what we believe. And so... Um, if you take the concept of culture inside an organization, one of the um, most dominant myths I believe organizations almost suffer from a little bit is they actually believe they understand culture. And uh, to your point, they'll often kind of talk about it or inquire into it almost as a, a noun, you know, like, where do I get it? How much does it cost? I think you said before, which was lovely. Um, and the reality is that if you start to talk to business, particularly business leaders, and ask them about culture, you don't have to talk to them for too long. You suddenly realize, and I mean this in a very, very respectful way, that they're absolutely incredibly naive or even ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant as in stupid. I mean ignorant as, is, as in ignorant. They, they ignore it because they don't need to pay attention to it. So I think, yeah, one of the big myths, if not the biggest myth organizations have around culture is the myth that they understand what it is in the first place. So a really big part of the work I do is actually just helping organizations understand what that word actually means and what role it's playing in the entity of your organization. Um, where does it come from? How does it form? What does it do? What's, it, what's culture's function? Um, how relevant is it? Who owns it? Um, why does it change when you don't want it to? Or why, why does the reverse happen when uh, you want it to change and it won't? It's resistance to change. So I think all, all those elements of um, kind of understanding the dynamics of it are almost like subcategories of the overarching myth that they believe they've already got it sorted or that it's not that important. Which is huge, big, important questions to be you know, diving into and challenging leaders with. Yeah, uh, really, especially if you genuinely, and I use that word, very deliberately, if you genuinely care about adding value through your business, so it's not just about uh, shareholder return, there's nothing wrong with shareholder return, or it's not just about profiteering, 
I think if you genuinely care about the output your organization is putting into the world and impacting on other human beings, then you cannot truly be in integrity with that if you actually don't have a really comprehensive, bone-deep understanding of what culture is. Because uh, at best, if you, if you don't have that, at best, you're going to be kind of delivering a very cosmetic, um, maybe even camouflaged presentation to the world of what you think they want to hear, but it's not necessarily what you're actually there for or what you're actually truly doing. So I'm increasingly starting to think that organisations lack integrity if they don't understand what culture is. Mm. Are you able to summarise what culture is, or is that one of those kind of big questions? That's... <laughs> um, I've taken the uh, taken the liberty of summarising on behalf of humanity because I don't think anyone else got it right. <laughs> so thank goodness I turned up right; otherwise, nobody would have a clue. Um, yeah, that's one of the paradoxes of being an anthropologist. It's, it's almost a standing joke. People go, "Oh, anthropologist, why?" So, what do you study? And you go, "Culture." And they go. Yeah, what is that? And the result, the resulting response is, we don't really know. <laughs> um, but where I've got to with it, and I'm, I'm a bit of a purist around it, I always like going back to the original um, etymology of the word, to actually understanding where words come from and what their original meaning was. So the English word culture is originally from the Latin word cultus, which means to care. It's where our words horticulture, uh, viniculture, agriculture, so those are to care for the garden or to care for the crop or to care for the plants. Um, and we just started to, in the 1800s, started to use that, well, why don't we care for each other? And isn't that what tribes are about? Isn't that what a village is about? Isn't that what society is about? Or in this case, isn't that what COVID's about? Is, okay, let's crank up the care. So what I'm teaching uh, my clients is, is to rather than use the word culture as that typical organizational perspective, and here's another myth, they sort of describe it as being the way we do things around here. My, my suggestion is it's, it's more than that. It's, it's far more than that. And it's more about why we do it this way around here. So culture is why we care this much about health or safety or customer service or... Uh, quality that we choose to do the things we do this way to ensure that quality to deliver that quality to enhance that quality so I think there's a lot of benefit in just um, as a consideration considering your culture even at home even with your family culture while we're all in kind of lockdown around the world is going what are we as a uh, nuclear family or a nuclear culture truly care about I love that I almost want to um, kind of paraphrase what you said again. Like sometimes we have this definition is that culture is what we do around here. Yeah. That, that dive into, and, and feel free to jump in if I get this wrong, but um, what you're almost posing is that why we do what we do around here is the essence and that that's yeah. I, I think, yeah, you've, you've actually summarised that really nicely is that Otherwise, uh, you know, there's a big part of being human that's just an animal, right? So we have a, we have a body and we go through those kind of bodily type functions, of eating, drinking, moving, mating, whatever it happens to be. But what makes us truly human is not that functionality. It's not just the doing. Um, the whole animal kingdom does doing. It's, it's why we're doing it. 
that separates us from uh, you know a lot of the other species on the planet and, and sort of being more deliberate about that so why am i doing you now why do i wash the dishes diligently right and rather than just seeing it as a task that i want to finish so i can get back to watching the soap opera on tv so if i wash the dishes diligently it's because i care well what do i care about well i care about my family um not being sick or not getting ill off uh, bugs that have you know stayed on the plate or in the bowl or on the spoon you know so i think care brings out the humanity in us and i think by understanding what we care about provides a invitation to back into ourselves on a daily basis about how to be more human today so if i bring this into we're, we're currently in a unique environment for workplaces in particular there's not a not a single industry that hasn't been impacted by COVID-19 and if we think about workplace culture often we do think about it being the posters on the wall the way that we say hello to each other in the morning and all of that has changed particularly with teams uh, and a lot of um, organizations where people are either working from home or they're working from different locations than they have before, but there is still a job to do. Uh, how, how does that transition the cultures from a, an office environment to distributed teams? Um, are there things that you're hearing or seeing in the way that organisations are, are making that shift that is retaining, I, I guess, that essence of, of care um, and on the flip side, are you seeing moments or, or signs where that care is not, not happening in workplace? I get that's a really big, broad question, but I guess my question yeah. is, how do we bring culture into work from home team yeah. when we've never done this before? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, for your listeners that aren't aware of uh, the individual, there's a, a wonderful he's almost considered like the, the founding father in kind of corporate anthropology, a gentleman called Edgar Schein, um, Emirate professor, retired now at MIT in, in the States. He has a very, very simple model that's kind of potentially useful for the conversation we're having. And he describes kind of cultures operating at three sort of levels. At the surface level are exactly what you just talked about are the artifacts and the symbols. The, the visual or the audible sounds or, or, or signs of language that uh, let us know who we are, where we are, who we're with. And that can be the obvious thing like a, a logo on a building or on a, even your local petrol station or um, local convenience store will often have a logo letting you know that's that particular brand of petrol stations. So you're right, in the workplace, we often have those kind of symbols or charts about measurement or progress or results or health and safety guidelines or instructions, right, which is um, don't run, walk. Um, so one level of culture is all those visuals and, and the, the conversations that occur around that. And you're right, once we become distanced from those, sometimes we lose the visual connection with those signs. But thankfully, there's two other sort of layers to culture that Edgar Schein reminds us about. And the next layer down, which is the deeper level below the signs, is what he calls values. So the values are basically 
why would somebody put that sign up in the first place? What would they need to, and this is back to that word care, what would you need to care about to have that sign up? Right, so um, we're conducting this conversation on Zoom. So at the moment, if I may, I can see there's, there's material items or artifacts even behind you where you're sitting at the moment in your office or library. So for example, you can see a picture of, or maybe it's even a miniature statue of an owl, a bird, you know, the wise owl. So that's an artifact and the value would be what would someone need to believe in order to have a feel that's appropriate or humorous or wonderful to have an owl sitting in their office. And I don't need you to respond, but let's, let's just play with this. And you might be say, oh, that's, uh, that's uh, actually a gift my daughter made at school and brought it home. It was an art and craft thing she did. Um, I was blown away with the quality of a, the owl looking like it does, and it's a stunning looking owl. Uh, but given she was only you know, three weeks old when she made it, it absolutely blew my mind. So it's actually a symbol of pride. So that next layer down is why we value those things in the first place. And it may not be an owl, it might be a profitability chart or a Gantt chart or a, a project um, chart. So the values are, why is that important? And so that could reveal efficiency or productivity or so it starts to give us a kind of this is that meaning element that's the deep layer, even though we're missing the symbols. So if I just pause there before I go into the, the third and final layer, I think given what you've just uh, inquired into is when we're doing distant conversations like we're doing, because we lack those uh, visual symbols and auditories, it's often very helpful to keep summarizing. And you, you've done that even in our conversation today, where you pause the conversation and just summarize it, right? Which you're going, okay, Michael, so um, are you saying then that being is potentially more interesting or relevant than just doing? So the moment you did that earlier in our conversation, you took the values that have been discussed and kind of highlighted them because we're currently missing symbols or visual communication. So a really good, useful tip in these types of uh, distant conversations or um, webinars or Skype calls is to summarize far more regularly with each other what you think the other person's just said so that we can capture, if you like, the value or the key concept that's just been shared and make sure that we're actually in agreement that that's in fact what we're talking about. I love that, that sense of just reiterating time and time again, because what it gives, and I'm sure you've seen it, it gives the other person the opportunity to go, no, that's not what I said. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As well, so for leaders or in meetings, just to capture that quicker than what we normally would, sounds like a really practical tip, love it. Yeah, it's, you know, something as simple as saying, um, you know, just invite them to share back what they've just taken from what you've just said, rather than just assuming that what they've taken is what you meant. And often, as I say, in, when we've got things even like full body language can uh, help enormously with that, but for often as we are, we're kind of restricted even in this conversation to head and shoulder shots. So there's a lot of valuable information that comes from hand gestures and facial expressions that we've both been using during the course of this conversation. But there's a whole bunch of other body language, which is, you know, whether we're leaning forward or backward or whether the uh, legs cross or that we give us subtle indications that maybe somebody doesn't quite agree with you or is a little bit uncomfortable about what you just said or even just needs a bit more time to contemplate and understand what you just said. So I think, yeah, I think just, just, 
confirming. Um, I've heard that story. I've heard that anecdote. I've heard your explanation. Is the point you're trying to make that we need to improve our communication? Is the point you're trying to make is that the way our customers used to think about us may have just shifted during COVID and we, we need to reconnect with customers to understand how they're seeing us now? Love it. So I'm going to ask the obvious, the third layer. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and the third one is deep. Um, so the third one is values are what we consider to be important. The, the third layer is called the belief systems or the underlying assumptions is how Edgar Schein describes them. I, I kind of typically prefer to nail it into the word belief, which is why is productivity or, or safety or efficiency important in the first place. So if you put those three together, I'll give you an example. If we have a, let's say there's a, rec a record chart on the wall in the office when we were at work that showed us you know, the results we've generated this week. So that would be a, a symbol or an artifact. What that symbol represents at the level of values, the next tier down in Edgar Schein's model is progress or performance results or uh, objectives. And then the, the deeper level, which organizations, and I think this is the huge, if you can remind me in case I don't come back to this, I think this is the opportunity of the whole COVID kind of situation is the deeper element is kind of asking the question, the basic underlying assumption is, so why do we believe in productivity again? Or what is, what is, it, what is it that's so rewarding about profit? So it's, it's that going back to the core foundational belief that we've often forgotten that we believe in so it's what I referred to as pre-conscious. We, we probably had an early conversation when we set up the business going, now profit's going to be important, otherwise we'll go out of business. But then the moment we're not going out of business, we forget why we're chasing profit and we just get into the habit of chasing it or managing it or stimulating it or inviting it. And I think the COVID situation enables us potentially just to actually have some time and some space to kind of go back to that underlying assumption is why are we chasing profit again in the early days when we started up it was out of survival we're surviving now what do we need to be making as much profit as hungrily or, or the degree of desperation that's almost become habit that we used to have when we started and maybe the answer is no maybe the answer is you can now become non-profit Maybe the answer is maybe you could discount all your prices and do marginally profitable because you've actually got enough already and make your products and services more accessible, more available or break into new markets that couldn't afford you before. So just those three levels of looking at the symbols around you, understanding what they represent to you and then understanding why that representation is important to you enables you to kind of almost spring clean your own culture just dust it off, have another look at it and go, is this what we, is this what we still believe? Is this, is this what we're all about? Is this what we want to become? Is this what we're invested in? Is this what we promised? And I don't know, I'm sure my wife and I have done a huge clean out over being in lockdown. Um, of literally the things like that with our wardrobe, with our library, with our music collection, we've just gone through everything and almost done 2080. You know, what, what's the, what's the 80% of our time that we spend with 20% of what we own and sort of boxed up everything else to either give away to charity or, or dump. And I think the same thing can apply within our organizational cultures. You can actually go back to the really central components, the, the really 
deeply held in the belief level of culture components of your culture that are still adding value that are still relevant that drive you to excel or to serve and revisit those and just check they're still relevant check that you've still got integrity around those I love that. And I think most people listening will have that commonality that they've cleaned out something or they've sorted <laughs> out something in the last <laughs> month or so, let alone if not the entire house. Uh, but transferring that to cultures or the things that we believe, why are we doing what we're doing is, a, is another level. Um, what came to mind as I was hearing you talk for me was there's also a huge amount of courage that's required in that. There's well, that can be that that sense of asking the question, but what if what if the answer is we don't need to make a profit, and the entire that we have entire teams geared up for that? Um, yeah. Or what if the answer is this is not the product that serves our clients anymore or our customers? Yeah. Uh, that that can be quite unknown and and scary as well. At the start of this year, you you came and spent some time with our team, which was such a gift to have you um, in the room. Thank you. And and I remember at the time that um, you shared with us something that really, really struck me at the time and it stayed with me, this sense that fear is the gravity of culture, that mm -hmm. it's the thing that can hold you back. It can be the handbrake for mm -hmm. kind of progress. Um, I almost think whether it's fear or um, uncertainty or anxiety, uh, there's a bit of that going around in terms of people's experience at the moment, both personally yeah. and professionally. Um, how, do, how do cultures and therefore individuals become skilled at sitting with fear or addressing fear, particularly in, in workplace cultures? Yeah, that's a really good question. And thank you for in, inviting that because the, I think in many cultures, um, fear and the response to fear or the um, processing of fear is not something we typically talk about in organizations. We, we kind of put systems and processes in place to almost get rounded or ignore it. So it's not a comfortable conversation in a lot of, a lot of organizations. And yet, if you go into high performing cultures, so, so all of the highest performing clients I have, um, at some stage or another, have deliberately had a conversation around the table going, what are we afraid of? In fact, let's not just take it fear, let's really amp up that conversation. What are we terrified of? Right? What, what is so overwhelmingly confronting, it could stop us in our tracks and send us into uh, possums in the headlight, like freeze. Because if that's a possibility in our world, maybe it's worthwhile investigating that and talking about that while we're not in it. So that should it ever appear, at least we've got some familiarity with the conversation, at least we've got some recall or some uh, recognition of what we discussed. It's almost like, do you remember we talked about if an earthquake ever hit? Well, I think that might have been it, right? Unless Bob just bumped the table. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of merit um, in not, and this is going to sound kind of corny, but not being afraid of fear conversations. Mm. So you're right. I, I describe um, fear as being culture's gravity because culture has this amazing capacity to lift all of us up to levels beyond which we individually wouldn't necessarily go. 
And you will see this when you see acts of courage um, in society or in, just throughout your life. And we, we've all witnessed dozens of them where somebody steps up and does something for others. Sometimes they don't even know who others are, right? They just see somebody in need or in trouble and uh, reach out to that. And Australia does this every single time you have a disaster, which seems to be every second month, doesn't it? Floods or fires or somebody drowning or under a shark attack or something yeah. or goes on in Australia. So that courage is an ability to respond um, in a challenging situation with the best of you. And that best of you often is something you haven't necessarily owned before or even seen yourself before, but the fear invites it to step forth. And it is out of that becoming brave or becoming courageous that you kind of reveal or rediscover yourself again. So, you know, I encourage organizations wherever possible is to actually sit down and have a really, really frank conversation. And to be, to be perfectly honest, I've been advising a lot of my clients at the moment to actually have this conversation around the dinner table um, or, or over Skype if you're in a fractured sort of family situation is actually talk, talk through worst case scenarios. And uh, depending on the age of the children, I almost encourage the kids to be part of it because um, I found in traditional cultures, traditional cultures, um, tribal cultures will sit around the fire at night and talk about the possibility of starvation if the crop doesn't come through or the antelope don't return this season. And they talk about the possibility of dying. And I find in Western cultures, we're even terrified of that word dying. I mean, we don't want the children to even know that it's a possibility. Um, and I, I think we're missing out on something there. I think there's a real, and I'm not trying to be manipulative with the concept here. I think there's a real um, positive element that can come out of talking about worst case scenarios and, and what do we do if that arrives so that we can find even from just the mere mention of it, a better version of ourselves now that potentially in the discovery of is enough to keep that worst case fear at bay just because just by having the conversation about it being a possibility invites us to become somebody we weren't a moment ago that is better placed or uh, is more considered or has more courage or more creativity or more humor or uh, more solutions than the fear-based version 30 seconds ago of us had. So, powerful. yeah, powerful conversations for leaders to step into. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife and I did it um, in New Zealand. We've been in, uh, shut down for uh, just under four weeks now. And day one, we went, okay, let's have the fear conversation what's the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario is uh, one of us dies and then maybe we've already contracted uh, maybe we don't get through this and then we kind of go great so if that happens uh, who do we need to take care of and um, you know there was a puppy puppy conversation there was a our three kids conversation there was our kind of wider family parents conversation um, how well placed are we to do that we realized in a couple of areas we weren't and realize it was too late to do anything about it, which brought up another fear, which is, does that make me, you know, not, not the son I thought I was or not the father I thought I was? And so we talked through those fears. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of feeling the fear, allowing it to be real, not trying to stop it, not trying to avoid it. It's just going, well, okay, I can feel how much fear I've got around that as a possibility. And just literally 
be courageous enough just to sit with it. Because what we've found, we've been doing this work for quite a long time, is what you find is fear will dissipate if you're unwilling to acknowledge it. It's when you resist it that it kind of hovers around and haunts you in the background and catches you at your vulnerable moments at two o'clock in the morning when you wake up. Or, But if you're willing just to just kind of sit there and stare, stare it in the face and go, yeah, I am terrified of this and feel that. It's almost like part of our, and you're probably better place to talk about this than I am, Ali, as a, as a, a psychologist, part of our brain kind of goes, I'm, look, I'm bored with the fear conversation now. What else you got? Or is there another ghost we can have a look at? Because this one's kind of feels a bit tame. It's not quite as frightening as it was three minutes ago. So I find a lot of the, we spent pretty much the first 24 hours just doing an inventory on what we were terrified of, including going out of business and becoming bankrupt, which are both real potential. Um, we have potential for if the shutdown carries on for, you know, three, four, five months, we could be there. So we've had those conversations and uh now there's still real possibilities but i don't have an emotional response to them anymore kind of we just got bored of being afraid and so you kind of go all right what else can we do well then so then we switched in creative mode you go well you know how can we respond or what else could we do if this whole current business goes under and we're still alive then what do we turn our hand to you know what, what skill sets or what um what offerings do we have that people may find valuable or useful? So, yeah, I, th I think there's a real maybe, and maybe this is maybe this is kind of one of the unforeseen benefits of the COVID thing is to ask humanity just to pause and have a look at what we're really afraid of, rather than just being busy and and striving for what we want. Maybe some of those wants were driven by underlying fears that we haven't acknowledged in ourselves, and when we acknowledge them, maybe we don't need the wants anymore. Maybe we're quite happy with what we've got. Interesting, because um, there's a huge amount of honesty that needs to come into those conversations, and I'm sure that you've been part of them by virtue of the work and uh, you know consultancy work that you do in, in organisations where leaders will say, "Yep, righty, I'll have the fear conversation," but really, actually, kind of gloss over it uh, mm. and go down the path of, well, just playing devil's advocate or risk. You know, they're very happy to talk about risk but not always comfortable to talk about fear. Yeah. How would you encourage leaders to, to go beyond just talking about risk management and actually diving into what terrifies me to my core? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I think you actually did. I didn't know the answer, but I think you just provided it. I think it's the language you use. So risk is a concept. What you find risky and what I find risky will be two different things. Um, Management is a concept. It's like, what's the process for managing my way through this incident? And some people say, well, I don't want to manage my way through it. I want to skip through it. You know, I want to sing and dance through it. I want to rubble through it, right? So, so I think it's in the language. So I think if I was encouraging leaders, how do you encourage, invite, and obviously being a leader, you've got to start with yourself, but find emotive language to express. So rather than switch into your back into your head or your kind of clever neocortex academic language of theory and concepts is actually going, no, 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 describe it as an emotion. What emotion is going to trigger you where that emotion gets to the extent it's so enormous, you would describe it as terrifying. And it could be, 
It could be uh, rage. Right? It could be um, guilt. Right, so I had some of that come up when we're talking about, you know, what if we can't get to some of the family members that uh, we can't save during this? And I, I was just sharing with my wife, I had guilt come up, going, why would it take something like COVID for me to, to think about doing that? Why haven't I done that before? What, what's wrong with me? What's, what, why was I so selfish never to even factor that in before? So I think, yeah, I think following your lead, I think if you can find emotive language, language that describes the emotions that are connected to rather than process systems or concepts, that, that's, that's a very real way of tapping into the underlying feelings we're having. I'd love to. Yeah, you go. Yeah. Sorry. I was just thinking, even as I said that, that the other thing with the, with feelings is you can get out of them very quickly as well. So once you declare a feeling, you don't have to dwell. Um, so the how I got out of the guilt conversation was to change the subject. Right. So I felt it and went, oh, I can feel it going. So we basically went, great. So do you want to feel the whole thing go? I said, no, actually, it's, it's dissipating on its own. So then you can change the subject and talk about something else. So it's not that you need to do sackcloth and ashes and kind of sit and whip yourself <laughs> into uh, how bad a human being you've become. It's just acknowledging it, feeling it, knowing it's real. And I think the acknowledgement is the freedom. I think acknowledging that, yeah, I've, I've got this going on, just by doing that is a is a relief which separates you from it, which means that you then not compelled to carry it with you, not to compelled to carry it forth when you go back into pretend mode or cover up mode or denial mode. Um, so I think there's real, real truth and real benefit in just owning worst case scenario, having that conversation, allow it to be uncomfortable. Um, the mantra, my wife and I use the mantra is because both was getting quite emotionally involved with some of the conversations we we're having around this on day one of lockdown. And, the phrase we use was, it's okay to feel like this. So, you know, I'd, I'd be potentially upset and my wife would just say, just repeat the mantra and go, it's okay for me to feel like this, which it is. It's okay for a human being to feel doubt or feel fear or feel terror. And it's part of being human. So just reminding yourself, it's okay to feel that and sit with it until it, again, it will, I promise you it will, it dissipates. It starts to relax. It starts to ease. It starts to shrink, it starts to evaporate. And the moment that starts to occur, it means you are relieved of the responsibility of carrying that for yourself. And also trying to fix it or do anything with it. I think what you're so beautifully describing, I think we, we go, well, if I'm going to feel guilt, then I need to know what to do with it. And that's another fear on its own. Yeah. Just yeah. acknowledging it is yeah. uh, so right. really, yeah, really powerful. I want to um, ask you some questions around values because I know you've done a huge amount of work on the power of values. Uh, and I, I do get a sense at the moment, I think every habit that we've ever had <laughs> is being reassessed. We're, we're collectively reassessing what matters to us, uh, what yeah. things are important. And for some people, they're realising it's going out for dinners with family and friends yeah. <laughs> um, and can't wait to get back to be able to do that. Um, but your, your research into 
um, values and the way that people tune into them. If someone goes, I don't even know what's important to me, what my values are, where would they start? Where would be your, your starting point? Yeah, I think um, the best place to do it is actually do a fairly comprehensive inventory. And, and thanks for the invitation, by the way. Um, it's very difficult for most of us just off the top of our head to sit down and go, okay, what do I value? Um, and even if you try as a little exercise, you grab a you know, pen and paper or iPad and, and start writing down what you value. Most people are run out of answers after writing about six or seven things down. And, and, I find, and you might find the same. A lot of them are similar. They're family. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're very generic. If yeah, that. very clustered, aren't they, as well? They're kind of interconnected with each other. So I think uh, exposing yourself to a, uh, a wider values inventory that includes values that are um, beyond just what you would normally choose for yourself. And the reason for that is that all of us are creatures of habit. So we all embrace and embody sets of values that might have been important to us when we were seven, but now we're 37. Um, maybe we've matured beyond, or maybe they've been evolved, or maybe they've been replaced. So, uh, and you haven't acknowledged that in yourself, so you're still operating off the value that you valued when you were seven. So I think that's a really good starting place is to uh, locate a, um, a sort of a wider set of values than the ones that you hold true to, almost to test your own values against those. So it doesn't mean you surrender your values, it just means you're given options um, that you wouldn't normally consider to go, well, what about this? Um, so I think that's, that's a really healthy place to start. And the reason I was thanking you for just uh, for the invitation is I think the COVID-19 situation is a really contextually important challenge to our values. So maybe I should just pause here and just kind of explain what I mean when I use the word values because uh, different methodologies or different disciplines refer to values using different language. Um, so we, we describe values as being your preferences, what you prefer to experience, as you said, dinner with friends. And in my case, it's um, regular coffee at the local cafe, which is off, off the agenda at the moment. So it's a preference you have. And then if you like multiplied by or amplified by the priority that you have on that preference. So let's say it was um, health as a value, as a preference. I prefer to be healthy. You go, great, Michael. So to what extent do you prioritize in that in your life? And I kind of go, look, if I'm really honest, I don't. I don't really pay attention to my health when it's suffering. Uh, otherwise I don't, don't really particularly watch what I eat. I don't exercise much. So a value is both a combination of the concept that you want to experience coupled with or associated with the amount of energy and attention that you give it. So it's back to what you described earlier in our conversation, Ellie, where you talked about it's not just the doing, it's the being. So it's the, it's the understanding of and the relevance of the value like family or friendship or health or uh, faith or whatever it is that you're into but then also looking at what is the doing of that? Um, do you actually practice what you preach here or is it just a concept that you're playing with? So the reason I'm saying all that is that COVID will be messing with our preferences right now. A lot of our preferences will have been restricted or paused or challenged even. And so rather than kind of rail in defiance against that insult and get really annoyed, 
it's a really good opportunity to sit down and go, okay, who am I here? What, what is the, what is the current version of Michael value based on what the world's context is providing as a opportunity to reconsider those or reflect those or recalibrate those. And actually, I actually did this for myself uh, last week. So I uh, sort of went through that process and found, in fact, that the uh, very familiar with my values and my core value hadn't shifted at all, but had suddenly become possibly a hundred times more important to me than it was before. And it was already really important to me before. So now it's just become it's become so dominant to me that all my other values almost don't matter in comparison to it. And that's the first time in my life because of the COVID situation where I went, oh, I've always known this to be important. I've always acknowledged it and practiced it as important. What it's just asked me is to become that value, not, not live that value. This is, this is an invitation to become it. Because right here, right now, it's the only thing that actually matters to me. And so that's... You know, it's been a really kind of challenging invitation that I'm both deliriously excited about and back to the conversation we had also brings up every kind of level of fear and doubt that I didn't even know I had around it going, what? Wow, Where, where's that come from? So um, that may sound a little melodramatic, but I'm actually having a lot of fun and creativity and spending a lot of my contemplation time around that and feel like it's a form of metamorphosis I feel like it's kind of like that journey from caterpillar to butterfly opportunity just by allowing myself to go into the cocoon and melt down on this thing to find a level of truth that maybe I haven't exposed myself to before or that any of us could do expose that level of truth to ourselves to find out what's really going on what, what we really are what we really believe in so that we can re-emerge maybe still in COVID or maybe post-COVID and become that thing? To me, that almost begs the question of um, what do we carry forward, as you say, mm. once, once some of those restrictions uh, have been lifted? And, and the big question is when, and we don't know, and we're sitting in that uncertainty and certainly preparing for a longer period of time, but certainly... Something I've been sitting in and, and you know, following on from, from your story, I guess my question to you will be that interest of uh, what will you say no to when things change again? Because I think as people kind of have the space to pause and, and maybe reflect on that question themselves, what really matters? What do I actually believe? What's important to me? Um, when, when we go back I don't know if there is a going back but if, if there is uh, sometimes habits can just mean that we 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 forget or uh, we let go of some of that so are there things that um, you know without going into the details about things that you will say no to again or that um, or suggestions on the way that people can carry forward that those things that they've revealed that are important to them? What are the ways that we strengthen that? Yeah, I've got kind of two responses to that. Um, so I'll start with the what do you say no to bit, um, and then I'll, I'll come back to, if you can remind me in case I forget, I'll come back to my actual responses, not so much what I say no to, but what do I now say yes to? Uh, 
and they sound they sound similar or potentially just even the opposite of each other but again i think there's a subtle difference that could make all the difference in understanding but let, let's start with what are we saying no to um i'm, I'm just going to quote my brother here my brother is a, a phenomenon um he's a, a, a an incredibly disciplined human being three-time olympian and he has a uh, he has a wonderful or he's retired now but he had a wonderful discipline around his diet because Olympians, um, even when they get sick, there's a whole bunch of medicines they're not allowed to take because it gets into their blood system and then they have blood tests to make sure they're not doping. And that can be, you know, kind of four years of hard work um, down the tubes and because the blood test comes out and said, look, you took this painkiller. So he was absolutely fanatical about what he kind of put into his, his body. And I just, I just found it absolutely phenomenal to watch. Um, was asking about him one day and said, how on earth do you have the discipline to do that? He said, oh, it's really easy. I just do a diet. I said, yeah, I know, but everybody does diets, but hardly any of us kind of really stick to them, and especially to the degree that you're doing. And he grabbed a piece of paper and wrote down the word diet, D-I-E-T, but he wrote it vertically. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, it's a formula that stands for do I eat this? Right. And so he has that as a kind of a mantra in his head when uh, somebody would say to him, you know, uh, hey, mate, uh, celebrating your birthday, bought you a beer. Right. He can't drink alcohol because of what he does. And so do I eat this comes into his head, which is no. Right. So we go, thank you so much for the beer. Um, I really appreciate it. That's so thoughtful of you. And thank you for celebrating my birthday with me. It's so great that you're here to do that. Um, and he would kind of turn into a bit of a joke, but he'd go, and just to let you know how much you mean to me as a friend that you are here to celebrate my birthday, I'm going to give the beer back to you. Right? So here it is back to you and thank you. But he says, and he'd let me obviously know, I can't drink alcohol, but I appreciate it. So I think that's a really powerful way of um, just looking at whatever the offer is in front of you and just asking yourself the question, do I entertain this? No, I don't because of who I am. That's not an option for me. Or uh, he used to exercise religiously. And I'm sure we've all done this where we join the gymnasium and then don't turn up. So he did the same never, thing. As, never. No. The same thing, which is, do I exercise today? And if his calendar said yes at three o'clock in the morning, then he did it and kind of ignored how he felt about doing it. He just got up and did it. So I'm not suggesting we can all be kind of disciplined to that Olympian level, but I still think there's a lot of merit in that as just having it as a checkpoint. You know, do I eat this or do I entertain this idea? And I used it even with people kind of insulting me, right? So someone would give me an insult and I could feel in my gut a response to it straight away of how dare you or, and I used to remember my brother and go, well, do I entertain the insult? Yeah, nice. Went, Actually, no. They're entitled to have an opinion of me. I'm entitled to disagree with that opinion or I'm entitled to hear that opinion, kind of go, yeah, okay. I could see how I could come across to somebody that way. It's not what I meant or not what I intended, or if I did, I'm really sorry. But So it just gave me a breathing space of flexibility to see what I didn't want to accept into my life. So that would be my no response for you. I love it. And so the yes response, which is so yeah. different. Yeah. Um, so for me is no, no is a response in the absence of the yes. 
so and this is this is a really recent discovery for me which i'm finding so entertaining and so inviting is no the option of no is only going to turn up when i don't have clarity on what the yes is already and so once i and this is where that invitation has been in that with that core value for me once i accept the invitation to become that core value that core value is a yes statement about me in the world and therefore the no's will be deaf to me the, there will be no need to do no's there'll be no need to hear them because if i get it right and there's a lot of work to do but i'm looking forward to it i'll be the embodiment of the yes and therefore even the choices will evaporate it'll just be this is the way to be for my time on this earth in a manner that that i can live with that i can um, honor out of just the sense of its rightness or its truth or its power so i think and even to say that i've got i'm shaking a little bit so there's, i've got that's what i mean there's there's a lot of doubt came up even around that um which is which i'm going to embrace and then kind of work with but just if i can just allow myself to walk through that trepidation to the other side i have a sense and this is for all of us obviously i'm not talking about me here uh, i think for all of us if you can walk through that trepidation through to the other side there's got to be a calm clarity waiting for us on the other side where you become the thing that you aspire to so it's not a, no longer an aspiration it's no longer a goal it's no longer an objective it's an it's a sense of identity or it's a sense of awareness that before you were just playing games at or pointing at or fishing for and it's now it's now a subjective reality if that's not getting too technical I guess what you're describing is there's no longer a decision. Right. It just is. Yeah. Um, that pathway. That thank you. That's, thank you. That's really helpful. So I've just, um, as you know, that the decision word is to decide, isn't it? It's to cut off the options to uh, side airs and pesticide, suicide and fence. So, so to cut off what we don't want. So I, I guess that's what I was alluding to when I was saying, imagine if you, there's no need to say no because we are the yes. Mm. thank you ali that's that's actually that's going to serve me really well even for the work <laughs> no it's uh you know there's something really enticing and for me it's almost um about embracing the the space uh mm. but carving out and being intentional and purposeful that all of us kind of have at the moment uh and we have those choices around um what you consume and that's by when i say consume it's the the insults the conversations the news the the narrative the, the fears those sorts of things or we can uh consume other things like so, yeah it sounds like there's an invitation to consume something else that's um, lovely which might be yeah who else we are and what that what that might look like and and mean i'm interested in in the uncertain in the unknown it sounds like there's a few things that's exciting you but what's exciting you about what's next for you in terms of your own creativity and exploration um i've just been spending a lot of time kind of acknowledging creativity 
Um, so, uh, as I say, I mentioned earlier, I'm sort of a, a really, really frustrated uh, singer-songwriter <laughs> in me somewhere that just doesn't have the capacity, the capability, the skill to do it. So I was watching things like um, Ed Sheeran has a movie that's, I think it's out on Apple, um, where they literally document him writing his, his most recent album that he put out. So just watching him at work being creative and watched another one with Bruce Springsteen again, recently released an album and has a concert that he plays in his barn on his property. It's just beautiful to watch. But again, he talks about the songs and what they mean. Um, revisit an old favorite of mine. I'm a huge Sting fan and watched an old movie of his recently as well, where pretty much the same thing. They were documenting his creative process. And uh just fell in love with creativity as a as a way of celebrating life and it's not an area that i particularly overly embraced i tend to be a little bit sort of too i guess theoretical um so that's reawakened kind of a, a bunch of opportunities for me so one of the things i did was i've always i've written a number of books which are non-fiction um, but always wanted to write a parable um, fiction and again just had real concerns about the ability to do so anyway long story short I've, I've done it during the COVID so I sort of sat down and, and wrote it and just loved it just um, just re really it's like lighting a candle and just going whoa you can shed light on this whole area of life that I know others have done I've just never really kind of tapped into that before the writing itself is pretty terrible and that's <laughs> that's absolutely fine. It was just the the enjoyment of engaging with it. So that's definitely something I'm going to uh, really pick up and play some more with. And then the other side is um, back to the conversation you were saying earlier is my wife and I kind of just starting to play with a new offering we're going to go to market with around those personal values which I've always been, we've been doing that for some time now, but I've always been quite careful and I'm going to use the word even cautious around how deep um, to get into that conversation. But I think COVID and people just being um, sent into meditative, contemplative retreat, as the Buddhists would say during COVID, I suddenly went, wow, okay, maybe this is the opportunity to actually provide a language and a vehicle for um, supporting people to go into that deeper kind of level of inquiry. Um, so yeah, just going to play with that over the forthcoming weeks to, um, see if we can do something creatively with that, that, um, takes, you know, takes the whole thing considerably deeper than we'd ever done before. I'm excited about that and the, the contribution that you'll, you'll bring to that conversation. Cause I think there, there is a craving for it and there's some time and space. And I know even just for families where you talked about, you know, sitting down with your kids and talking about fears and talking about values is, is something we don't often, A, have the time to do or B, have the language to do. So I think that contribution will be really powerful. Michael, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours and I'm conscious of the time that I have taken up uh, with you and, and so appreciative of your thoughts and insights. I want to finish off with one final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, uh, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Hmm. To be fully conscious. So 
to be fully aware. It has nothing to do with doing anything. It has nothing to do with achieving anything. It has nothing to do with any level of status in society or my profession or my work. Um, so standout life would be one whereby the level of consciousness that is being expressed is optimized. It's pushed to its, and pushed is probably the wrong word. It's, it's probably accepted to its highest possible level and, um, and a willingness to sacrifice anything to get to that place. Uh, yeah, I, I think that would be it. I'll sign up for that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for your time. It's been such a delight to chat with you. And you too, Ali. Uh, can I just share something with you that's uh, I just wanted to, what's just struck me while you've been doing this is, and I know you've got an incredible skill set with this and an empathy level that maybe a lot of your listeners maybe are even um, unfamiliar with, but I don't want that to put them off. What I've just realized is what you've just done here just by interviewing could be a wonderful thing to ask um, any, any of your listeners to use as an opportunity with their own network, their own family. Uh, we started this conversation talking about organizational culture and some research done fairly recently that said, I think it was 82% of employees would be far more engaged in their work if they understood the people they work with better at a human level. That she knew what was going on in that person's world and life and what they, and I just thought, wow, what a, what a wonderful thing you've just done here. I've, I've got enormous value. So thank you so much out of listening to my own thoughts while we've been having this conversation because um, they've been triggered in ways that I hadn't anticipated or prepared by your questions and your generosity and your empathy and your curiosity. And so it occurred to me while you were doing that, I thought, wow, what a wonderful thing that maybe employees could do with one another or a, a granddaughter could do to their grandfather is get on Zoom and kind of conduct it like an interview and just sort of say, you know, where were you born and what's your favorite color and what's the song that's meant most to you in your life? And if you, if you weren't doing the work you currently do, what, what else would you have aspired to? Um, just to kind of reveal that sort of human side behind some of the identities and roles that we play in each other's life. There's backstories in there that maybe we're not familiar with that could be a really cool way of spending some COVID time is yeah, just chatting and going deeping with each other. So I've, I've taken a lot, from even just how you conducted yourself in this discussion um, in relation to that. So that's, that's something I yeah, just wanted to share back with you. Thank you. Um, I think that's a beautiful gesture. I can imagine, yeah, kids and, and giving some purpose to that to find out yeah. from their, you know, grandparents. Sometimes grandparents will reveal to their grandkids what they won't reveal to their own children. Yeah. That's so cool. um, but I, and I love, and I, you know, again, I appreciate that for my, um, one of my kind of KPIs, so to speak, is that people feel like they get as much out of it as I do uh, in doing the interviews. So um, I appreciate that. I think there is something really powerful in sharing our stories and hearing our own thoughts out loud. Um, yeah. yeah, that encouragement to do that with each other, really, really strong. Thank you, Michael. Enjoy the rest of your 
You're yeah. down time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.